Welcome to the podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. With me today is Associate Professor Marcus Watson. Marcus is currently the Executive Director of the Clinical Skills Development Service in Brisbane in Australia. He has an extensive history in military and healthcare simulation spanning two decades. He is an Associate Professor of Medical Education and of Psychology and is a special interest in cognitive engineering and in human factors. And it's my great pleasure to welcome him to the podcast today. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you, Todd. Thanks very much for joining me. I'm, uh, I'm very interested in talking to you today on your exposure and experience with debrief. And I was wondering, uh, you, you've obviously used this a lot in the military in the past, and I was wondering if you could tell us what the concept of debrief is and why it's important. So the, uh, debriefs um, are used uh, for two purposes. One, they're used to confirm um, what people's uh, assessment of a situation was, so uh, to understand, or to get everyone's understanding of, of what actually occurred. And so in many cases what we find is that uh, different individuals um, actually perceived the situation running um, significantly different to other members of the team. And so by sharing uh, people's beliefs and experiences, uh, we're able to then form a common belief about what actually occurred. The second component is the debrief becomes an opportunity for learning. And the learning can be both at the individual and at the team level. So the concept here is what did we do well and how can we do more of it and how do we avoid doing things that didn't go so well. Are there particular things that... Uh, that this sort of learning lends itself to? So the, the strongest point around um, debriefing is, is the use around what are called non-technical skills, so teamwork, leadership, followership, communication, and situation awareness. Uh, to a lesser extent, it can, it can also be used for things like decision-making and technical skills. There seems to be a very strong culture of this in, in the military and defence forces, is that right? has a strong culture um, for several reasons. Firstly, in, in general, actually, the military doesn't spend a lot of its time at war. It actually has spent most of its time uh, training for war. So uh, the concept of preparing and making sure you're well prepared is, is, is absolutely critical to the military being successful in both military uh, wartime fighting situations and peace uh, situations. Um, but debriefing is also essential in terms of um, avoiding errors that you wouldn't want to, to make again. And so in the military, when people make mistakes, it often leads to um, individuals being harmed or, in fact, the person who made the mistake being harmed. So the concept there is because of the individual involvement is, is high and the stakes are very high stakes, uh, we, we don't actually want to make mistakes. And if we do want to make mistakes, we don't want to have them repeated. So... How is this implemented in, in the military setting? What, what are the nuts and bolts of the debrief? How is it done? So the debrief is, is um, common as feedback um, from the very, the very early days of um, training for, for soldiers and officers. And so the concept is the uh, regular feedback makes people feel comfortable with feedback. So if we can talk about a situation once a year, well, we might feel uncomfortable if it didn't go well. If I talk about what happened once a day, we tend to get more comfortable. If we actually talk about every single time we do an activity, we become very, very comfortable with the sharing of experiences. 
And uh, so the advantage there of, of actually making it a commonplace to sit there and ask people what went well, what could we do better um, on a regular basis means that we end up, as people get more and more experienced at their roles, they get better at their roles. And so the majority of the comments is positive feedback. And where there is areas for improvement, it's clearly defined and therefore there's an opportunity to prevent it from occurring again. In terms of format, how is it usually run? So in the military, the, the military is of quite a hierarchical um, structure, so it tends to be run by the person who is in charge. Um, that's not necessarily the most senior person. Um, it, in the military, because of that debriefing is used um, a lot, and especially in, in my background in the commandos where um, we did a large amount of training, um, debriefing is, is quite short and sharp. So the concept is not to have a long discussion about what happened, but a short discussion that summarises what actually occurred, what we did well, what we need to improve, and do that for the team, and then actually do that around individual needs. So it, it's far more direct than we see in other areas. However, there are other appropriate debriefing methods, so it's, it's quite acceptable in areas where you have less consistency or less clear goals to actually have longer debriefs where you would actually um, look for new learnings. An example for that would be in um, aviation and military, uh, pilots will come in and do several levels of debrief. So they'll do a debrief about their experience, um, they'll do a debrief about the team experience, and then they'll take that on into actually then debriefing the event um, and trying to use that for operational and strategic planning afterwards. So what um, maybe a five-minute debrief for um, a particular small event can actually take a whole day if we're actually trying to use it for planning purposes. It strikes me as not that easy to translate that into into a clinical environment. Can you tell me what the experiences have been in, in that sense? Sure. I, I think it is hard to translate. So, um, firstly, it's, uh, with the military, it's developed over um, decades as part of the culture. And, in fact, as the military has become more about um, intelligent ways to fight wars rather than uh, sheer force, it's become more and more crucial. I think in healthcare, uh, the issue is that people are, are, are not trained to communicate and are certainly not trained to either um, manage debriefs or actually trained to participate in debriefs. So I think that makes it, it very, very difficult when you take a group of people who are, um, have many years behind them of training uh, as an individual and so technically we have doctors and nurses that are, uh, and allied health that are exceptionally skilled as individuals but actually haven't gone through any type of training to teach them how to be an effective team. And even in the individual training, they often haven't received um, what I call appropriate debriefing around particular events. They've actually uh, often received little or no feedback, or if they do receive feedback, it tends to be in a very critical format. It sounds like something that we need to start as part of uh, almost undergraduate teaching now. Um, so for me, I believe it, we, we actually should be addressing teamwork on day one of orientation into an undergraduate program. Healthcare professionals work is in dynamic teams um, that change rapidly, far more than the military um, does, and there would be, a, I see, a need for um, greater skills in that area. 
So it does need to start very, very early on. The issue is, unlike the military, healthcare is a real-time system that must operate 24 hours a day and we can't hit the pause button. So integrating it is going to be a, um, a time-consuming uh, process and will take, well, I, I suspect, uh, maybe a decade to get to the stage where we need to be at. You, you mentioned, of course, the communication issue and also the continuous nature of our profession. What other barriers do you see as um, standing in the way of implementing this more widespread? So I think that there are quite a few barriers. Um, so the first one is the training barrier that we train as individuals but have to work together as a, um, a team. Uh, the second barrier is the concept of professionalism. So professionalism, allowing people to uh, focus as individuals rather than as a member of a team, um, has some risks. We need to, we need to ma maintain clinical decision-making, but at the same time we need to actually do that um, moving away from just individuals working independently to indi individuals working as part of a team. Um, other barriers that are there is culturally we haven't done this. So it's asking for a major cultural change. And that, that's going to have resistance for many reasons. One is we feel time pressured, and in many clinical areas there, there are major time pressures. So how am I going to find five minutes after every event to actually have a discussion about it? Um, people see that that makes it very, very difficult. Um, I also consider that, um, that they're, because that they're focused on individual skills, they're actually not using the concept of team skills to optimise time to free up um, time for debriefing. So it's a, a little bit of a catch-22. We, we actually need the environment to change before we can find it easy to change. And so our experience in clinical areas where we have embedded simulation to help with uh, learning how to debrief and how to manage not only in the simulated environment but the clinical environment, it, it takes a period of two to four years before we start to see major impact within the department. You mentioned some of the benefits and, and one of the, the major ones that you mentioned was um, teamwork and team skills. There, I assume that there'd be particular environments that this would be more, more applicable to than others? Well, it's an interesting one. Uh, often we, we assume teamwork and team skills is going to be most applicable in terms of acute areas. Um, and we see, in fact, good acute areas often have, have good effective teams. The, um, but the reality is we actually also need good distributed teamwork. So the work between a GP and specialists may, may take in the form of a, um, a uh, asynchronous team where the sharing of workload across the two is um, critical to the patient's outcome. Now, in asynchronous teams, we still need to communicate effectively. We still need to have effective situation awareness. And we still need to have effective leadership in terms of the decision-making around the patient's needs. So in order to achieve that, we actually need to have the time to discuss what's working and what's not working. So we can actually have a debrief that's not about an immediate event, but we can actually have a debrief around an event that may have occurred over days, weeks, or even months. So I think that the debriefing capacity would apply across... Uh, I think the, the entire clinical range where you have more than one clinician working together. 
I think where it's easiest to learn the skill about debriefing are in the tighter team structures, such as in wards, ICUs, operating theatres and emergency departments. Yeah. I guess um, in any concept or culture change that requires significant efforts and significant resourcing, there's always the question of evidence. Are there measurable outcomes uh, from this that and are you aware of any evidence where this has been implemented and led to outcome changes? So it's hard to pull out debriefing by itself as the uh, reason behind improvements. There is certainly evidence that on simulated-based courses that um, simulation-based courses that use debriefing make um, significant improvements in effect sizes and in fact um, quite recently um, there has been a meta-analysis in September, and my apologies, I haven't got the the, the date, um, sorry, the details of, of, of the authors from that, where they found that that 96% uh, of, of studies of using simulation had an impact on outcomes, and of which 32 of those could be measured to direct patient outcome. Now, the majority of those studies actually use debriefing as a component of that uh, training, but to isolate debriefing itself would be very, very difficult. Um, on the upside, we, we have evidence from some in-situ simulations where we're using uh, simulations not only to train but also to assess the process of uh, running a department and uh, there we're finding they're now using debriefing not only for simulation-based training but for clinical activities and they've been able to increase um, access to training from about 12 sessions a month to 52 sessions a month uh, through the use of um, debriefing and simulations to address their processes. I guess the next question is if, if you were keen to implement something like this into your practice, where would you go for uh, resources and like, how do you learn to do this sort of thing? So debriefing does take some skill. If it's done poorly, it can actually be harmful. It's very, very important that debriefing is a secure, safe environment uh, for those people involved. So there are training, there is training available. Uh, the majority of training is associated in healthcare with simulation programs, where the concept there is to actually also train in a safe environment with simulations rather than actually try and do this immediately around uh, clinical patients. The advantages, I suppose, of doing it in simulation are that you can have controlled and guaranteed experiences which you can't always do with the clinical. The critical bit though is the step from simulation to the clinical environment because realistically we want to be changing the way we practice clinically. We want to have a more efficient system, we want to make sure it's safer, we want to make sure it gives the patient a good experience but we also want to make sure it gives the staff a good experience. So we actually need to develop the skills in simulation and then transfer them to the clinical environment. You mentioned the concept of harm. What, um, what harmful events are possible from this sort of thing? So the harmful events, it's quite possible to blame people in debriefing. So rather than discuss what was observed to actually um, um, apply blame to an individual or, or take blame as an individual. And the risk there is what we see and hear may not actually be exactly what occurred. It will be our interpretation of that. There is also um, a risk of harm um, 
debriefing that if we don't actually allocate a significant amount of time for the discussion of what happened, we get um, the situation where people haven't been able to resolve ways of moving forward. So that we, we end up focusing on the negative rather than the pos positive of what future opportunities are and how we would, would prevent any negative things from happening again. Where should I start if I'm going to do this um, and want to start it in my practice now? What would be my first step? So my, my first step would be to say um, you need to get a group of people skilled at facilitating debriefing. And the safest way in healthcare to do that would be to do that through a simulation program. Um, the second thing I think you need to do is, is have support from the leadership within a department that they're going to engage with debriefing around their standard events. And so the standard events can be debriefing at the end of the day. They were just going to have a summary of how it went today. It can be around particular adverse events, um, but the, the risk of only focusing on the adverse events is that it is associated with the negative. You then, I think, need to make it very clear to staff members what the rules are involved in debriefing. So who needs to participate? What are the rules when people want to be able to uh, step out from that environment? So we shouldn't be putting people in a situation where they feel unnecessarily uncomfortable, that it's, they, they feel it's not actually positive for them as an individual as well as the team. And so that takes some establishment of, of making very clear that the goal of the debriefing is about providing a safe environment to improve the system. It's not about an environment to um, focus on any individual. Marcus, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a very interesting discussion. Okay, thank you very much, If you enjoyed this podcast, why not visit our website? Critique is a leading provider of online critical care education. Multimodal resources such as podcasts, interactive modules, the journal club, an interactive echo module and much, much more are available. Why not visit us today? www.crit-iq.com.au